Hi everybody, this is Joe, aka the Curvy Geeky Fangirl. As always, I'm not about to do Curvy Geeky Fangirl recaps. And you can always count on these recaps week after week, kind of, sort of. As long as there's not a super long vacation situation. I will try to give you a heads up. But uh, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and my website, curvygeekyfangirl.com. I do this podcast through Anchor app. You can also find it on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and a lot more. There's always a new platform that they're like, hey, your podcast is over here. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, thank you so much. So that's happening. I do weekly podcasts. I recap the TV and film that I catch throughout the week. That's very geek oriented. Sometimes I touch on books. On the rare occasion I have time to read a book. That is not happening this week. But I am going to be jumping into Into the Badlands, Supergirl, The Expanse, Humans, Cloak and Dagger, My Hero Academia, and the finale to Sense 8. As always, there's going to be a ton of spoilers in this. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. That is your warning. If you haven't seen any of the stuff I'm about to talk about, take a break, hit pause here, catch up, and then come back. We can have our conversation and our discussion. I'll be looking forward to it. So right after this, we're going to be jumping into these recaps. All right, so we're getting into the Badlands. I'm trying something new, so I'm actually recording this right after I watched it, so it's fresh in the mind. So I just finished watching Into the Badlands, like I said, and um, okay, some things, some things. Here we go, let me talk about it. So seriously, what is happening between Cressida and Pilgrim? I've, if, it started out with like Cressida and Pilgrim on the same wavelength. I mean, she was the more out there, of the two but they were agreeing on everything and they had this like focused ideal for the plan and everything was working until it came to Castor. So Castor has been sick and he's been like a weakness for Pilgrim, a growing weakness for Pilgrim. And I guess Cressida is noticing that and is like, we need to get rid of this. This needs to go, <laughs> this needs to go. He's not instrumental. He can be replaced. There's no reason to like have these feelings and these emotions for this, uh, this failing warrior basically so pilgrim is not having that essentially secrets come out we find out pilgrim didn't know that cressida sent castor out to go help with chow's men grabbing those refugees that they were liberating from widow's area and uh he's mad he's like why you know castor's sick like why why the hell would you send him out to go do all that and she's just like, whatever. It was a warrior's death. Like, does it, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And that's when we really start to see like them starting to to diverge, starting to to separate and kind of break apart a little bit. I'm interested in seeing if that that break grows, if it's going to be cavernous at some point, where they just aren't on the same page at all. For the most part, Pilgrim seems. I mean, even though it is out there, and he's talking about Azura this and Azura that he seems pretty level-headed in all. And it seems like, well, like Widow back in like season two, he's got great intentions about what he wants for the future of the Badlands. However, as we've seen in this show, good intentions mean nothing. They mean shit if it's not followed through at all. So, and we've seen that with Widow, like her intentions were like, I'm gonna free everybody, no more of the slavery business. And then as soon as she got into power, she was like, okay, well maybe slavery for a little bit longer uh, until I can settle other things. Like there's always gonna be another reason to kind of keep things the way they are. So 
it, it's going to be interesting to see like what happens with Pilgrim and Cressida now that he's got a little bit of doubt going between them. Uh, speaking of Castor, he got captured by Widow and I was 110% sure she was going to flip him. I was 110% sure she was going to figure out a way to get him to side with her. And I thought she was going to use him, well, use him against Pilgrim, but like in like a covert way, like he's going to be my spy on the inside. Apparently that wasn't the case at all. She just wanted to plant enough doubt in Castor to bring the message to MK. MK ultimately is going to be her weapon inside Pilgrim's little army. So, and it worked. For the most part, it worked. So Castor gets given back to Pilgrim and them and she uses that to kind of create this story of her being like this kind of not necessarily lost, but more willing to join their cause type of person. Like, I don't know how she knew Cressida was going to figure this out, but Cressida realizes that she used to be a dark-eyed one and she's no longer. And so they're like, ooh, she knows that they're going to think that's something they can use against her. But her ultimate plan, because she's a strategist first and foremost, is to use all of that against them. Get MK to start some kind of chaos within their ranks. Uh, get them shook basically and take over. That's what she's always done. So she does use Caster to do that, which is really interesting, but also, okay, here we go. Um, we also got a random um, side bit with Caster and Nyx and the mini reunion between Caster and Nyx and he sees MK, he sees his replacement, jealousy rears his ugly head and he starts spouting everything Widow was saying to him about how Pilgrim's a liar and they're just being used and yada 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 and mind you he, in the middle of all of this he's still dying we're starting to see the marks on him that Henry had on him just like I guess it's supposed to be the black-eyedness of it all slowly but surely taking over and we see him and Nyx and Nyx still has a connection to to him and she's still like trying to protect him even though he's wilding out right now and trying to kill everybody mk easily disarms him she comes to his castorous rescue and then you know it's interrupted by pilgrim there was a gross moment there where pilgrim was like leave your brother take mk and leave and i couldn't have help but flashback to the fact that uh not but one episode ago before our little mini break Caster was throwing accusations at Nyx about taking taking MK to her bed. Was this an incestuous relationship? I have a thousand questions. I have a thousand questions. Gross, 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 gross. So that randomness. And then we also got a random like samurai history in regards to Caster. Like clearly it was a buildup for Pilgrim. So he could say goodbye to Caster. Like you could tell that from far off. As much as he disagreed with Cressida and her methods to end Caster, he ultimately agrees with her. He's a loose end. And it's better to put him out of his misery now than let him go, apparently, just go crazy? I don't know what's happening with this. And I don't know, we haven't gotten the chance to see what happens if you just let somebody who uses the dark eye power, I guess, to their death. We haven't seen what they look like unraveling. So there's that. But basically, Pilgrim ends them. We don't get to see Caster uh, past this point. So if anybody was betting on episode six for Caster to disappear, you have one. Go collect your winnings. Caster is no more. But just this random samurai story that we got with him. How, how did that survive the apocalypse? What is... More questions. More questions. And so speaking of questions and Team Pilgrim. Also, by the way, outfits wardrobe in this series like they've been very they've always been really good at mixing and mingling 
different eras and different dynamics and keeping it like a, almost like a steampunk Victorian Edwardian type of feel in clothing. Uh, but with it, when it comes to Pilgrim, his their costuming is completely bright. I just realized, like when they showed them all standing in a line against widows people, widows peoples are in black and like a, you know, even though it's like a royalish blue, it's still a pretty dark blue. And you've got Pilgrim and his people, and just like these vivid, bright colors. It was the just the position of that was very interesting. And I wonder if it feeds into his whole belief of like hope and Azeroth and we're coming to be connected and yada, yada, yada. So that's random, random side bit. But yeah, I was, I was interested to see where they're gonna go with all of that. And that kind of leads me to like the Tilda situation. So now Tilda is paired up and teamed up with Widow again. And that's dumb. So Tilda spent a good portion, was it the beginning of, no, it wasn't the beginning of the season, last season. The beginning, most of last season, separating herself from Widow, like trying to get out from her under her clutches, no longer referring to her as her mother, not trying to be her region at all. And now she's back. She had a whole talk with Odessa. Odessa is the worst, still the worst. So Odessa apparently is just tired of fighting. She doesn't have it in her to keep doing whatever they're doing because it just feels like a losing battle. Like nothing's getting better, nothing's changing. They're literally almost dying every day. And Tilda's kind of looking at her like, and? Like, so, <laughs> like and what's your point? What's your point? What are you talking about? And she's just like, I'm done. And I guess she meant that as like, we should be done because that's how Tilda takes it. And she's like, well, I'm not done. I can't be done. There's still people I gotta help. There's, I still believe in this cause that we're fighting for. And Odessa has the gall to be like, well, really, you would choose this cause over me? Basically, basically saying like, you have a choice. It's either me or this cause. And of course, Tilda chose the cause. Of course she did. That's how her and Odessa met in the first place. Did she really think she had enough ground to be like, oh yeah. And Tilda's gonna run away with me. Please wake up, Odessa. Well, you're the worst. So now she's gone. She's gone. She's probably gonna resurface at some other point. But she, she's the worst. Odessa's the worst. That character is terrible. She just was like, at first she had me because we met her in the previous season and she was a recently, like, I guess freed? Kind of saint? Doll, which is basically their prostitution. So she was kind of like a freed prostitute after living that crazy life and kind of saw a freedom with Tilda. And now she doesn't see that anymore. She had me at that, but when she became like this jealous bitch, just like hating on everybody and being super clingy to Tilda, she lost me, but whatever. So she's gone, who cares, she's gone, doesn't matter. So now Tilda is just like super into her blind belief that this cause is going to help free up the Badlands, that she makes a decision to go ahead and team up with Widow with her all of her little, little messages in between or caveats in between, just like, this is what's happening. We're doing this on a work only basis, yada, yada, yada. Whatever, Tilda, sure, whatever, who cares? Um, but speaking of Tilda, we did see that moment where Tilda sees MK, like when they're facing against Pilgrim and they have that moment. And I gotta say, I'm still kind of, I'm still rooting for them. I'm still rooting for them to kind of come together, whether that's in friendship or romance, because they started out like that. And I just, I would love to see the full circle at some point without either of them dying, hopefully. That might be too much to wish for on this show. So we get that. We also get uh, the random story side arc of Sunny. So Sunny, okay, okay. Sunny's little side arcs are mad boring. 
I'm just going to say it. Uh, there of of all of the story arcs that we're getting with Widow and Pilgrim or Pilgrim versus the Gao people or even Tilda and Odessa, like when it comes back to Sunny, it's a very stagnant, we need to find a cure for Henry story arc. And yes, we're meeting interesting characters in the in-between and they're doing little things to try and liven up his arc because it's, it's into the badlands. It's going to end in fighting. But it's not adding much to his story. So like we're still in the midst of we got to find a cure for Henry situation. And they're still trying to find people to help them get to Azeroth or to the Pilgrim, whatever place this is. And so we're seeing a little bit of progression with that. In this recent episode, the little side story they gave us was like Sonny slowly remembering his earlier beginnings. Like when he was a little kid before he was even uh, captured by... What is his baron's men at the time? So apparently Sonny has just always been wanted, even as a child, by some group or another. And we get to see a familiar face, at least in the story arc, and that is the trafficker, the, the guy who's been capturing all these poor people and selling them to the barons this entire time. So we get to see him come back. And that was hilarious. So they're trying to set it up like, ooh, a super enemy from his past. Like, I don't think we've seen this guy since season one, honestly. Uh, when he betrayed Sonny in the first place, when he was supposed to help with Vale at the time. And so they bring him back. But it's hard to take it seriously when we, A, we know Sonny is capable of doing nearly anything. And B, just the way they set it up. So apparently, you know, the whole situation with the boat, double crossing, the guy shows up and he's just like, you can do what I say, Sonny, or we can take you by force. And of course, Sonny's going to fight because it's into the badlands. We're going to have our fight. We have our fight. Sonny wipes out damn near all of his men, like 98%. We got two whole dudes left that are alive, but he's still got the gall to be standing on the docks and be like, Sonny, you better do what I say. I'm going to kill your friends. Word, kid. You got two guys left. He killed everybody else. Why would he suddenly be like, ooh, you're right. Now that you have way less men. No, of course, of course not. It doesn't go down that way. He kills the remaining men. They capture homeboy. Apparently, this guy knows how to get to Azura or wherever Pilgrim is. And he may or may not have more story as to what's going on with Sunny. But all of that is saved for the very end of the episode and hinted for the promo that I got to see for the next episode coming up. It didn't... Again, it didn't really make much sense why we threw this in here as a thing that could have happened. We knew Sonny was going to get out of it. That's the story. But sure, why not? I did get to see Nick Frost fight again, though, and I do appreciate that. I do appreciate it when they create fighting sequences for people who aren't like these insanely talented martial artists on the show. Like, it's quite clear a lot of the people on the show, even in the early beginnings, were people who were studying this martial art, uh, even if they weren't doing it their entire lives, you saw that they had at least a semblance of training. And with Nick, who's an older guy coming into this, it's nice seeing them come up with fighting sequences for him for his current body, which is always great. It's it's nice to see, like, you know, depending on your size or, or depending on, or even even your ability and how to do this, they can come up with creative ways to still make make it look good and make it look effective. And that's, what they do with Nick. Plus, it's just awesome to see Nick uh, Frost fight. He's really good at what he does. And it just it's hilarious and wonderful all at the same time. So that's it. That's really it. It was, I mean, there was some, we saw a lot more people in this episode. We got another random side chick story for Baji, which, but 
otherwise not much not much happened in this episode so it kind of was like a filler like a oh well just like to catch everybody up because we had the break not much is happening we had no lewis tan we don't get to see what's happening after the aftermath of him helping widow fight so i mean we get in the promo for next week we see the clip of them like super close to each other which again further lets me know that they're trying to push this love angle which pretty much means his death i don't see lewis tan surviving this season (laughs) that you can't have love in the badlands that's what they've proven over and over again you either break up or you die that's it that's it so we'll see we'll see we'll see what happens with all of that hopefully with it coming up next All right, so we're moving on into Supergirl. Okay, it's not the finale, which is its only saving grace. As you guys have heard before, this this season of Supergirl, I just am not understanding, and I'm not really on board with, and I am incredibly bored with. So this latest episode was not an exception to that. Uh, This is after the culmination of curing uh, Rain. So finally separating Sam from Rain for some reason. But there's hints that there might be some some long-lasting effects because she's kind of zoning in and out of things. We also get Kara going back to see her mom on the the new planet. I don't I don't have the time to even learn what it's called. So that place. And we all know she's not going to stay there. And we all know it's not going to be an easy transition. And that's exactly what happens. So she gets there and they try to paint it like she's suffering from, from always having to be on edge being on Earth, which is not true. Like, to an extent, I could kind of see them trying to put that argument out there of her, like, always trying to be on the lookout and always trying to be, like, on the watch for something. She's literally indestructible on Earth. Like, she she doesn't need to look on around, like, over her shoulder or anything. Like, she's ensured that kryptonite can't be used against her in any kind of menacing way. So unless she comes across a supervillain that magically has access to this, she is unstoppable on earth so i'm not sure why they painted this persona for her but whatever i guess it was to feed the episode and we also get the culmination of her finally discovering uh that the lady that was part of the the council for her to even get the rock in the first place is actually the true ringleader behind trying to get the world killers together and now there's three new ones now there's three new i guess world killers about to be on the prowl I don't know if they are world killers themselves or just the priestesses from this cult that they had been a part. Who cares? I understand why we need all of this dramatics. Why do, why do we need so much dramatics? How does this tie into rain? What's the purpose of all this? I feel like they had a bunch of ideas for Supergirl and this villain midway through the season like at first they were like "Ooh, we're gonna do this and then they had their mid-season and then they were like oh crap we still have these other episodes okay well how about we do this but nothing is tying into what we did previously and now we have to match all of this for this last episode like it's, it's mad confusing and a hot mess so I, I hope Supergirl gets another season it's not always like this I I liked the first two seasons I know some people had some qualms with this second season and fair because Monel is boring as hell. Like, why is he back? But I still argue that those first two seasons were far more palatable than this last one. And this last one had a lot of promise. There's a lot of promise there. 
especially in terms of the world killers, especially if they could flip them. But for, I guess budgetary reasons or that's just not how they want the story to go or comic origin. I don't know. It just got really weird, really fast. And it's just been spiraling ever since. So um, that's pretty much it for Supergirl. Short and sweet because I don't care. I don't care at this point. <laughs> I'm still going to watch the finale. I made it this far and I will give my reviews on that. But there wasn't a whole lot going on with this latest episode. And yeah, so I'm just going to switch on, on into uh, The Expanse. The Expanse, as always, has been my saving grace. Getting to see what's happening with the crew of the Rossinati, getting to see what's happening with Naomi, getting to see uh, the after effects of what's going on with this protomolecule turned entity. This thing is crazy. Miller is back. Like Holden's having full conversations with Miller. Amos, we get to see Amos go full Baltimore Amos. So that was awesome. Yes, it is problematic because Amos does not have a streak of morality. Like he's that's something he's had to learn. And I think that's probably why he was so enamored with the friendships he had with Naomi and then later Prax. Like Naomi was his guiding star. Like he, she was the... Jiminy Cricket to his Pinocchio and he completely she completely crushed him when she when he found out that she had like her own personal reasons and secrets that she was keeping from everybody and he realized that like you know this this moral stronghold that he had thought he found in her wasn't as pure as as he thought and then he meets Prax where it is as pure as he thought Prax is like the beacon of morality in a lot of things and seeing Prax go through the stages of grief and missing his daughter and seeing his attitude change slightly and subtly. I feel like that was something Amos understood just through his life experiences of seeing somebody kind of shine bright and seeing that brightness start to dim as the world wears on them. So I'm glad that he had such a friendship with Prax and I'm kind of glad that he was able to save a lot of that shine for Prax, especially after they found their daughter or his daughter, well, their daughter. Listen, we're all on board with them being a couple. So there's that. So seeing Amos get his little standout now, like up until this point, this camera crew has been mad annoying and incessant on finding dirt when there is none. And we find out that they've been like messing with the ship. So the cameraman actually has messed with some of the controls of the ship uh, in his attempt to get even more access, apparently, on Holden and Gang. I thought he was working with Mal's daughter, honestly. And we have now established that she is Mal's daughter. But apparently not. This was just him really being really greedy and trying to get more info. So we see Amos like trying to get answers from them. And I love that he never raises his voice. He never gets to a point where he's like screaming at them. He just looks at them with that ridiculously dead serious Amos face. Like I am not fucking with you type of face. And just lays it out for them. He's like, and I, even the phrasing he used when he gets the the main interviewer girl and he puts her in a, in a hold and takes like, I don't even know what that was, a screwdriver? Like, what was that? To, to her neck and faces the blind guy who clearly can't see anything that's happening. But he's just like, you're going to answer my questions and then I'm going to kill her. Not or, not or I'm going to kill her. He says and, like, I'm going to get these answers. And I'm on a killer. It's up to you how fast this happens, basically. It's kind of how he lays it out. But he gets his information. So it was effective. And in the end, he didn't kill them. So there was that. Although he does put them in the predicament of being in a really sticky situation. Because now they're using the camera crew 
to speak on their behalf towards this other ship that's been chasing them this entire time uh, towards the ring. And they got to hope for the best that they, those people aren't going to turn on them or <laughs> just feed more lies into the ether. And I'm not sure if Amos thought that plan fully out, but who cares? Their annoying crew is off, the, is off of the Rasanade, and we've got Naomi trying to come in. So I know there's probably a little danger there as well. I, I really liked Naomi's little story arc, too. I liked that she, on the one hand, was looking at joining her fellow belters in like this nostalgic kind of reunion type of thing. Now that we know her history with the OA, now that we know that she's always been on this like, kind of like very liberal tint of making things equal within between being an Earther or a Martian or a Belter. So she thinks she can find these answers being with the Belter crew. She's not finding these answers. Not only that, but she's seeing how quickly they are radicalizing. Like they're taking things to a level that she's not on board with at all. And we see that especially when the captain's given her speech and they start pounding the ground and chanting and Naomi's not doing any of that. She's just kind of watching them with like this bewildered look on her face of like, what did I sign up for kind of situation? And she has a talk with the captain, her and the captain kind of had had this bond. Like, you know, they met on Saris? One of the other planets, way back in season one, and kind of bonded then. Like they both got to know each other, and kind of, kind of got a feel for each other. And I, I want to say there was even a friendship that was that kind of grew from that. So after everything went down and Naomi left Arasanati, it wasn't a surprise to see her show up on that ship with this captain. It was a surprise that she changed her mind so quickly. It feels like it's super quickly. I don't know if it's actually been in TV time that quickly. But all of a sudden, or not, well, pretty quickly all of a sudden, Naomi is not trying to be on that ship anymore. Part of that is probably because that ship shot on the Rasanati, shot at Holden and crew. Um, Another part of that is probably because a lot of the morality and the ethics that they've been pushing, she's like, no, nope, I am not on board. Not only that, but Naomi has a knack for seeing the bigger picture, and she clearly sees that this Belter crew is being used for a purpose that they aren't even aware of right now. One of them is aware of it. This new guy that's kind of showed up, he's definitely under, knows exactly what's going on and might definitely be a key player into how he's trying to make things go on, trying to manipulate, manipulate things into his favor. But she's like, I can't be a part of this. I need to get back with my family, which is the Rasanati crew. And we see her trying to head that way. Of course, their comms are down, so they don't know that she's coming and that's probably gonna add some more danger, but right now impending reunion is happening uh we also got like i said more on mal's daughter and just seeing more of her backstory like so again i haven't read the books i just know from the spoilers that i've caught that she is someone who basically was trying to get revenge for her dad trying to get revenge for his his name being put into the mud the way it has, even though he completely deserves it, but she doesn't see it that way. And we get the we get the reasoning finally as to why. So we see like her and her sister, uh, Julie, being completely different. They are total opposites of each other. Julie hates her father. She wants to love her father, but she hates her father. She sees him for what he is, which is a very corrupt businessman. And not only that, like when we see them, he is tearing her down for not doing something in the name of of the family. So Julie has like hit her end when it comes to being the daughter of a Mao. 
But uh, with, okay, I want to say her name is Cassandra. His other daughter. She is a complete daddy's girl. Like she completely sides with her father on like everything. And there's even a jealousy between, uh, or what she sees to be her her father's relationship with Julie. Like in her head, her their father completely idolizes Julie and puts her on his pedestal. And that's why he's so hard on her. But he barely acknowledges her own existence. And we see that when he like quickly dismisses her on like a bunch of things. She tries to like step up and be like, well, if Julie's not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And he's quick to say, you can't do it. And just like walk away. So for whatever reason, she's taking on this revenge thing. And we see her try to get like a message out to him of like, well, you know, I'm in a position now to help really see the success of this endeavor that you've put so much into. You know, I'm doing this for you, dad kind of situation. Girl, okay, so Leah, we see all that. We see all of that happen as well. There's a bunch of other things going on, but really that's those are the only dynamics I'm really looking at right now is Naomi getting back to Rasanati, Amos going full hardcore in this TV crew, and um, and and uh, Mal's other daughter. I want to say her name is Cassie, Cassandra? Something with a C, but she's going by a totally different identity right now. Um, I'm very interested to see what's happened when she finally meets up with Holden. They're getting closer and closer to that actually happening. Um, I'm also interested to see what's going to go on uh, with this Miller thing. So Miller's still popping up and showing up with Hol- uh, to talk to Holden here and there. It's pretty clear. I don't know if they right out got this strained out or not, or if this is still just implied, but clearly it's connected to the protomolecule. So it's clearly it's connected to this ring and the protomolecule and, and whether or not the protomolecule is using... Miller's consciousness, memories, to talk with Holden. But I don't know why the protomolecule would warn Holden or try to help him in any way. So more questions. I don't know if that's more Miller, if Miller's still around at all, or if that's just all protomolecule. Who knows? Who knows? We're going to get more answers on that. So right now, everybody's kind of heading into this ring and testing things and trying to see where everything goes right now. I think we have all three ships going that way right now. So we've got the uh, Earth ship that's going through, that's got the Reverend on it, and um, Mal's daughter. We've got uh, the Belter ship also coming through because they feel like they've also earned their place to be here because reasons. Coming through, that's how Naomi's getting through to get to the Rasanati. And of course, the Rasanati's right there. So I'm interested to see what's happening with the rest of the Expanse. Pretty short and sweet. And I'm going to be talking about the humans and Cloak and Dagger right after this. All right, so I'm going to talk about humans first. So humans is a series on AMC. It's actually a UK series. I want to say it's on Channel 4 over there. I don't know. I'm not in the UK whatsoever. But I think that's on all the advertisements I've seen for it, at least from the UK. So it's like Channel 4. But anyway, either way, uh, Humans is an import, and it's airing on AMC right now, and it's in its third series, and it is a very intriguing show. I got on board when uh, I finally hit Amazon Prime for its season one, which I want to say was last year, a year before, and I got hooked. This show is crazy interesting. Apparently, it's a remake of a Swedish show. Uh, that had the same exact concept that just repurposed it for UK purposes. But it just dives into all these ideas around sentient life, like artificial intelligence, the moralities and the ethics of having artificial intelligence, especially when it's geared into a entity that's used for our purpose. Like 
to do our everyday tasks or to do bigger tasks, but basically to help humankind. But we don't treat them like humankind. We treat them like a coffee maker and seeing like the results of that, the impact of that. So uh, in the first series, not every synth, is what they call them, synthetic, is sentient. So there's really only like five that are running around with, with some kind of idea that you know they feel things and see things and want to grow emotionally. And that's because they were all specially made by the guy who created synths. And they were especially made for his son. And it's a crazy story about how like, basically his son got into a terrible accident that cost the life of his wife. Somehow he managed to save his son, but his son is like basically cyborg. He's, he's got a lot of robot parts to keep him alive and working, but also some human. But this mashup hasn't been the most seamless of transitions. So like he's dealing with a lot of stuff and now they're on the run and they got to keep the secret with the fact that they're completely sentient. Like it's a whole thing. So in the first season, we see them trying to survive this world with this huge secret and doing a terrible job of it. Like it's not working well. It's not working well. In the span of this, um, I I want to say the synth we learn about that we meet and see through the perspective of the most is uh oh, of course i have nobody's name but it's um the one who joins the family so there's a synth who's sentient who is made by um the guy who created all synths to basically be like a mother to to him kind of watch out for him and as part of their cover for some reason they all separated they all just like split up so in order to cover for that she becomes she I think she wiped her memory because yeah, she was being hunted. So she completely wiped her memory and kind of like repurposed herself to be a regular synth to just help in the household or whatever. And that's who we meet first. So she meets up, but she gets uh, bought by this family and uh, we see them kind of slowly grow attached to her. Mind you, she is not sentient this entire time. So she's just acting like a regular synth and she's helping to do regular things. But in that, purpose of that we get to see the dynamics of the human family around her like how the relationships are holding up the issues they're dealing with and it's a lot yo it's a lot they're dealing with a lot of stuff it gets real messy real fast and it just it gets mad confusing after a while too there's a whole situation where like the father of this family sleeps with the synth it's a mind you again not sentient but still it was like it became like a question of like did he cheat on his wife or did he not cheat on his wife like did this just count as like a solo thing? Like more questions, but they dive into all of that. And eventually it comes to fruition that, oh yeah, she becomes sentient. And then we find out she's not the only one who can become sentient. There's another story. Uh, I need the cast names. What are the names of these people? But basically there's another story with another one of the synths who is sentient. Here we go. So Mia is the one that grows with the family. Uh, so we learn a lot from her. She's the most calm of the bunch too. Uh, but there's also Niska, and I really like Niska's story arc. So Niska is like this beautiful blonde synth. And when we meet up with her the first time, she's a sex worker. They have her geared up as a synth uh, sex bot, which apparently is illegal. Like it's not a legal thing to do, but for whatever reason, that's how she's decided her cover. I don't know if she got swept up in it or what. I'm gonna have to go back and watch that. But we learn about the sort of history behind that. So she is a synth who's sentient and now she's like dealing with the trauma 
of being used for sex continuously. And then we get backstory on her and we find out that when, you know, when she was first created by the main creator, the intent was for her to be another sibling for his son, but he also was using her as a sex bot. And it messed, it screwed her up. It screwed her up. Somebody she completely trusted. And she's completely sentient. So she has emotions and feelings about everything that's going on. And he's abusing this power. Like it's, whoo, it's crazy. She goes on a whole totally different arc from Mia. And she's she's pretty badass towards the end of it. Like she starts standing up for herself. She's not dealing with anybody's ish. She finds love again. Like it's a whole thing. Uh, you've also got Max. Max is like the heart of their group. He's the youngest one that was created. So he's one of the last ones. He's also the most pure hearted of the group. And I don't know if that's because he was built that way and that's just the way he's kind of taking things on or if that's just how he's come together now that he's sentient so he's the one that kind of is always optimistic and always sees hope in everything and uh in this current season he's the leader of all of the of the synths that have survived the awakening so there was a huge thing where they released basically like a software update that would allow other synths to be sentient again to be awakened and it worked and there was a huge amount of them that all woke up at the same time and now are completely sentient and now having to deal with what that means. Uh, when we pick up in this latest season, it's a little, it's been a little bit since that first awakening and they're dealing with a lot of fallout. There has not been a huge welcoming of the fact that now some are sentient. They're just going to straight out murder them. It's crazy. So we're seeing that they're definitely, the sense are definitely being treated as, um, minorities who are being oppressed right now and there's just all these other stories going on we have a story involving the kids from that family i talked about one of the kids their son whose name is toby for the show uh he kind of gets interested in a girl i want to say in the second season and she's played by Letitia wright so if you want to see some early Letitia wright acting ability you got it right there in humans um uh, she plays a person she's so she's an actual human who wants to be a synth so she mimics her actions. She gets her hair, like she gets a wig, so that her hair looks exactly like a synth. She gets contacts put in so that she'll look like a synth. And that's how she tries to navigate the world. It's, it gets real crazy and deep and just, there's a lot of questions about the moralities of so many things. So many things are happening at one time. So it's come back, like I said, and we're in the new season. The new season is, is kicking it off without a hitch. The first episode, basically kick the door open. We're picking up right after the mess of the second season, right after everybody was awakened. And we're finding out that everybody's at war, basically. Like people and these synths are at war. And some of these synths are trying their best to get back to the families that they were working for. And it's not happening. And then we've got some synths who are taking a completely different radical approach to things. And they feel like they need to be on the attack rather than be the victims of the attack. And it's getting messy, uh, per usual with the show, per usual. They are trying to find a common ground. We got Mia at the forefront trying to be the face of this group. We've got Max who is trying to lead this group, but it is not working. It is not working. They're losing more people like every day. They're not gaining any ground in terms of trying to show how equal they are to their human counterparts. But this is all in the first episode. So who knows where we're gonna go from there. One of the things I like that they touched on in this newest episode is that the father, his name is Joe. This is the father who had sex with the synth, which was Mia back in the first season. He has gone completely backwards. So 
he after his whole episode and sleeping with Mia and then finding out that she's sentient and then realizing that all this other stuff is happening, he's beca- he's like distanced himself more and more from synth and all technology, basically. Like he he's really trying to find his purpose again and I guess his trust and his comfort in just doing without all of this advancement and just being like a regular a regular human kind of deal. So we see him with the kids, it's implied that his wife and himself have separated since the awakening, and he's running a grocery store randomly. And it's like an old school kind of market looking place where you've got all the produce. It's not a huge shop, it's real little, but apparently the whole area that he's in is like that. Like they've all decided like we're gonna do without tech as a recourse to everything else that's been happening and kind of live these, these simpler lives without all this tech. It's it's very interesting. It's very interesting how that works, but it also feels like they're really swimming in denial. Like we can't handle the morality and ethics of having sentient robots out here right now and having to look out for them and care for their feelings and care about our actions towards all of this. Let's just go back to simpler times when it was just people because that was easier. It wasn't, it's still messy, but you know, I get it. I get the denial, it's more comforting. I'm interested to see the show explore that more. I'm interested to see it get shaken up because there's no way that everything that's going on is not going to touch this area too. So that's humans. That's humans in a nutshell. And then after this, I'm going to be talking about my thoughts on the first two episodes of Cloak and a Dagger by Freeborn. Whew, right after this. All right. So we're going to be talking about Cloak and Dagger. I decided to give it its own little segment after saying I was going to put it in with something, but here we go, whatever. So they gave us two episodes for Cloak and Dagger's premiere. Okay, okay. I'm gonna break this up into good and bad. And I am of the mindset of bad news first. We will save the good for the last, so we leave on a happy note, so here we go. Bad news up front. In this two episode premiere that we got, I had a lot of questions. Uh, in regards to what was going on with this show. So I am not super familiar with Cloak and Dagger, the comic. I know about it because I started doing research for it when I heard the show was coming out. Um, Podcasts that I listened to that talked about the show and talked about the comic. Reading what I have about the comic. It is, like I, I've said in the last one, mad problematic so so problematic cloak and dagger came out in the 80s you literally have a black kid at least comic book wise who comes up from the street and sees a friend of his who's innocent in a, in a crime that since being committed or they were witness to he gets shot and gets killed by by police and that kind of sets a tone for tyrone which is the cloak in this equation and um i don't know in the comics how he gets his power i think there's testing involved something happens he gets ability and they basically kind of cushioned it to the crack epidemic that was happening in the 80s so you got tyrone who is feigning constantly feigning for people or energy or life force something of that nature like it, it drives him crazy and like if he doesn't get his fix hint hint uh he can be completely destructive and then you've got tandy who's the light 
in this equation. She also happens to be the white person in this equation. And she can supplement this need he has with her blades, her daggers of light, that right, that she creates. So initially it was very much set up like this poor black person is completely enslaved to this white person. I guess it was supposed to be a correlation of like how black people and, and crack, I guess. I don't, you know, I don't really understand the mindset of that. I just know it's problematic as hell. Um, and then apparently they like, as the years went on, they try to clean it up a bit and try to make it so that they both needed each other. Like uh, Cloak still needed Tandy to help feed this need, but Tandy also needed Cloak to kind of help her with these daggers. Cause apparently if they don't feed each other or something, she can become quickly overwhelmed with all of all of her likeness. Some, it just, all of it sounds stupid. So the show is built on this ridiculous premise. Maybe in the comics it makes a lot more sense. I don't care to read them. So if you're a hardcore fan of Cloak and Dagger and you happen to be listening to this, please explain to me um, the appeal. But right now, so this TV show, into the bad news that I'm gonna give it, is doing, is doing the most right now. It's doing the most. So we get our first episode. First episode kind of sets the scene with the origin story. We see how Tyrone and Tandy uh, get into their ability per se, kind of. They touch on their very, very early days. They're like six, seven, maybe eight years old when all this is going down. You've got Tandy, uh, very much upper class, coming out of ballet class. Uh, oh, they already try to juxtapose it like she's a misfit. Well, I, I don't need, I don't know why we need all of this. Sure, but uh, she's. After class, it's completely night. She's left alone. Apparently a parent was supposed to come get her. Assuming, I'm assuming her mother because she makes a call to her dad. And it's just like, yeah, I'm still out here. I, okay. So my thing with this beginning already. Oh, and Tyrone. Tyrone's setup is that he's wandering the streets at night, like dark quarters type of streets uh, and trying to meet up tries to find his brother. His brother's in the middle of talking with his friends about stealing a car radio back from some rich person because reasons. Why? Why? So the reason I have a problem with this very beginning is because interviews about the show had very much tried to establish the fact that they had switched the origins between Tandy and Tyrone. Rather than have Tyrone be this street stereotype he was supposed to have come from like a well-to-do family and it was supposed to be the exact opposite for Tandy where she's like from the streets and worried about the come up. Eventually they kind of get there, but who, it is not clear. Like why was the brother trying to steal a car radio out of nowhere? What was, there's no explanation like why they're stealing car radios unless they're just trying to pose it as we steal it because we can. I bet it makes no sense. Anyway. It becomes climatic because stuff is happening in the meanwhile. Something's happening at sea with a ship or a vessel or something. Tandy's dad apparently has ties to some kind of experiment that's happening. And this experiment's starting to fail. You get, hear him get on the phone. You hear him fighting with somebody about the consequences of this thing exploding or hitting the water or something. Meanwhile, he's driving erratically on the highway is he on a bridge? For whatever reason, he's very close to the ocean. And between the rain, him fighting on the phone, and him just generally not paying attention, 
he ends up completely crashing the car and just falling over the bridge. I guess the impact kills him or the crash killed him. For whatever reason, he becomes immediately non-responsive and the car starts to float down into the lake. Lake, ocean. They said it's a lake and then they talked about a beach. I was very confused. So whatever, they're under the water. So we see little girl Tandy in the car starting to wake up as water is starting to seep in to the car. She starts to panic, things start to get crazy and an explosion happens underwater. Meanwhile, at the same time, we've got Tyrone and his brother. His bro- uh, Tyrone had taken it upon himself to go and steal a car radio because sure. Now, not only that, but how he steals his car radio is his little fingers grab the faceplate of this radio and magically this thing just pulls out of the car. Just pulls out of the car. I don't know if anybody's ever actually had to install a car radio or seen one installed, but that's not how this works, but whatever. TV purposes. So the brother is like, we need to return this. They're about to go back to the car. Cops show up, they decide to run. It doesn't end well, unfortunately. They make it to also like a highway, like a bridge. And unfortunately, the older brother gets shot. Like they have him held up. They're telling him to freeze. The explosion happens and it's enough to spook the cops that's got, that have guns. And they end up pulling a bunch of bullet holes into the brother. The brother falls into the water. Tyrone screams out his brother's name. Also jumps after him. Now, both kids are in the water at the same time. Explosion goes off. This light is supposed to be our origin of how they're getting their abilities. All of a sudden, little Tandy wakes up and she starts to see darkness kind of cloud over her car and reaches out for it. Meanwhile, Tyrone sees a very bright light and reaches out for that. More questions. Why the hell would this little girl reach for the darkness? Like, why would she be like, ooh, this is safe for me to grab? Were they trying to like insinuate or imply that they both feel safe looking at these things? Because we have been taught socially and through film that creepy shadowy darkness is bad and bright light is good. So I'm very confused with the reactions of the kids. But for whatever reason, they reach out and then we fast forward to the future. That's enough of the brief recap that I'm gonna give you, even though I was talking about the bad stuff. That's enough to set the tone. It's super slow. These first two episodes move very slowly. Like they kinda touch on their powers, but not really. Not only that, these kids now also have the ability to just tap into psyches for some reason. They can, like if they're touching somebody, they can see what their most, I guess, topical thought is. So for Tandy, she's seen everything from her mother basically just lambasting her in her mind over past memories to her boyfriend wanting to spend the rest of his life with her. Both situations got the same reaction by Tandy, by the way, for some reason. Uh, And with Tyrone, you know, he gets to see, was it the cop? It was the cop first. So he gets to see what what the cop actually saw when he killed his brother, which was the cop basically saying that, He can't believe that this happened, but he knows somebody who can fix it. And then we also get, um, was that his own memory or was that something else? That might've been his own. We got a flashback to Tyrone also like first talking to the cops after his brother died, but I think that was his own memory. So the second psyche touch that Tyrone has is with his mother and his mother for some reason is in a very shadowy grocery store with a blinking light. And she's with very little Tyrone and his brother, William. And in her, I guess in a nightmare of hers is that she loses both of her sons 
they're either missing or they are dead and she hasn't and she can't she's helpless she can't do anything okay all right show uh also it's reform so freeform likes to push the edge and quite clearly they are going to use the show to talk about social issues that's going on right now okay i appreciate the attempt so far the execution is lacking granted these are the first two episodes maybe they figure it out a little bit more down the line potentially right now it's just very heavy heavy handed and slow and so slow so like with tyrone and this was this was a worry of mine you've got tyrone they're trying to touch on issues about being black especially right now in America. So you've got Tyrone dealing with uh, the expectation of his parents. They want him to be super perfect because their worry is that he's going to turn out, unfortunately, end up like his brother. Like whatever he does, no matter what he does, he could still just lose his life one day by a cop, by random strangers. Like the, the fear is insurmountable, unfortunately, for his parents. So they're touching on that. They're also touching on him, like I guess trying to find his place in school. So he's going to a private school. I, he doesn't really have friends for whatever reason. He's kind of talking to one chick who also happens to be black. I don't know why we also need two black people as a couple. Sure. But uh, yeah, that's something that's happening. And then you got stuff with his teammates. So apparently his teammates were pissed that he hasn't been really pulling his weight in regards to, to the basketball team. So they resolved to just beat him and lock him in something. Okay. Sure. Alrighty. Okay. And then with Tandy, like her main issues... They're definitely touching on some drug issues with Tandy. They're also touching on her fallen class. So she's a white woman. She's not dealing with the same issues that Tyrone is dealing with clearly. So I guess they're finding, like, not to say that they're trying to find an equivocancy, because that that may not be what they're doing, but it's definitely what they what it feels like they're trying to do when they're trying to show the parallel between the two like Tyrone's got it rough because not only is he black but he's also dealing with all these other stigmas that are around him and then with Tandy it's like you know she's also dealing with hardship because she's poor and her mom is a drug addict and she's kind of a drug addict and I'm like it feels like a comparison like this is they're, they're kind of on the same page when they're not when they're not they're not doing a really good job of clarifying why we need all of this right now. Maybe I'm hoping for too much in a show. It is a teen show. It's not really supposed to be like an in-depth kind of critical analysis of anything. I I just have more questions. So, um, sure. Yes. So that's, those are the biggest things that are bothering me is that they are really leaning heavy into this classism and racism stigmas around these two characters but not really doing a whole lot with them it is only the only two i have only seen two episodes maybe this works itself out and it's slow and it's slow right now like right now they're not really effectively using these abilities they're not even diving into these abilities right now how many episodes we got of this show so that's it for the bad stuff here is let's go into some positive now positive it is interesting even though the show, show is slow and I have some qualms about what they're trying to, to reach right now into the show, it's still interesting. I'm still into finding out what's going to go on with them, especially when it came to the little versions of them. So the little kid version of them, the brief moments we got with them were adorable. The, the little girl and the little boy, they get to play them are super adorable. And that little moment they have where they're both 
Did they wash up on the beach? Did somebody save them? Somehow they're on the beach after all of that water ridiculousness. And they're holding hands with their heads like to each other. It is really cute. It's so adorable. And uh, at the end of that, Tandy takes the coat. That was another thing I really liked. So Tandy takes the hoodie that Tyrone had had. The hoodie is a throwback to Tyrone's brother. So it's actually Tyrone's brother's hoodie. And it was one that he was wearing because, you know, they very much set it up that he idolized his brother and wanted to be him. So he like stole his brother's hoodie to wear to go find him. And it happened when that accident went down. It also doubles as a cloak. So, you know, we can't just have him out here in the streets in a legit cloak because that's that's weird. Hopefully we're also not going to have Tandy in a very weird footy pajama with a cutout in her chest situation. So... Fingers crossed. But right now, it's a good substitute for cloak. So I like that they keep kind of touching on it, kind of broaching on it, but they haven't they haven't really done anything with it. It's only been first two episodes. Uh, I did like that they each had an item from the other. So Tandy's got the hoodie right now, and she puts it on to feel safe well, after her crazy day of just conning people out their money and then taking some drugs. And Tyrone, we didn't see Tyrone using an item of hers until... The end of the first episode? Yeah, end of the first episode where he pulls out a uh, ballerina shoe that she left behind from her six-year-old self. So he's just kind of looking at it and trying to figure out what's going on. I liked their meetup as teens. They go both end up at this party and they run into each other. And that's when, I guess it's another catalyst for their powers to activate. Apparently up into, from the time they were six or seven till now, their powers haven't even come to the surface at all but after they meet up and after they have their fight where he's chasing her to get his wallet back it activates it i like that kind of setup of like it took they had to re-meet in order for that to happen i kind of liked that especially since this is supposed to be an inseparable duo all the time uh i also liked tandy the actress that plays tandy is really really good she's really strong which is interesting because the actor who plays tyrone right now Maybe not the greatest, but that's okay. That's okay. We have tons of time to figure out what else he's going to do. It could be that I'm just not relating to his storyline. I don't want to say I'm numb to it by now, but it's it's not really treading on anything super, super new. I've seen it with Supergirl. I've seen it. Was it on, I don't think it was on Flash, but definitely it was heavy in Supergirl where it very much feels like people who aren't black are writing these these situations for them it's just kind of coming across flat we get it we got it there's a lot of other things that people are dealing with on a day-to-day basis we don't need to touch on this every single time but whatever um i did like his acting towards the end of the second episode so uh, he decides to confront the cop that took his brother's life, and it's a very serious situation. I actually really like the transition at the end of that episode, too, where it looks like he's about to finally do something really stupid, but revenge his brother's death. But at like the last second, he blinks out of it, and he shows up in front of Tandy. It was a really cool transition. Uh, what else is positive? And... That's kind of it. I mean, they've got a lot of side characters that are coming into the show. Tandy has a boyfriend that she's been with who's been looking out for her. And they quite clearly showed that uh, she is not ready for him. That she is not ready for this guy who's willing to literally put everything on the line to be with her. 
um, there's a whole moment where she's trying to get out of town and he hits her up and he's like, I'm in jail. I put everything on the line for you, but I really need your help to get out of this. And she straight ignores it and continues driving. I actually really liked that scene. It cemented how broken she is. Like she, she knows this man loves her more than anything, but she is not ready for all of that. She has issues that she is dealing with and she's also trying to run away. So there's that. Um, but that's it. I don't think we need, I hope we're not going to get more stories of them being separate from each other. I hope after the second episode that this is the catalyst for them to start being together and exploring these powers a little bit more and finding out what's going on. I don't know I said I was going to talk about any more, anything else bad, but I don't like that they're trying to show that Tyrone's doing a little bit better off financially with the fact that he goes to private school and has two parents. Like, that's pretty much it. He's living in a house that's got a little bit better furniture. He's got two parents who he's constantly battling all the time. Like, he's got a stronger relationship with his mother, but he still doesn't have a super strong relationship with his father. And he's going to a private school. Like, all that could be explained away with scholarship and other stuff. I also want to know why the mom has a gun and a safe in a bookcase. What would she need this for? Like, I have a thousand questions. More questions. But hopefully this picks up a little bit more. I'm going to continue to watch it. It's still interesting, but it's also moving super slow. But that's it. That's it for Cloak and Dagger. And yeah, that's it. Okay, so I'm going to dive into My Hero Academia, followed by Sense8. So Sense8 has uh, their finale that got dropped on Friday, I want to say. And it basically was the conclusion to everything that's gone on for the last two seasons for Sense8. Whew, I have some thoughts. But we're going to jump into My Hero Academia first, because that one wasn't as long, and it was mad interesting. So My Hero Academia is picking up right where they left off in the quest to save Bakugo, and it's not going well. So we find out All For One is here. He's here in a big way, and he's facing off against All Might. And All Might's kind of hindered because he can't do anything too, too huge, or he risks hurting Bakugo, because Bakugo's not that far away from everything else that's happening. Uh, so he's trying to sort out what to do, and it's really left up to the kids. So the kids that snuck in to try to help their friend are now in a position to try to do that. So we've got Deku, who's trying to think outside of the box. They are not allowed to use their powers to fight any of these villains. They're not licensed professionals yet. They're still kids in school. Uh, and of course, we've got poor Ida stressing the F out. He knows he's got to help. To, he's got to figure out a way to help save Bakugo. But he doesn't want them to fall in the same traps that he did when it came to revenging his brother. He was totally unprepared and had to get saved and nearly died. So... They're all kind of stressing, plus they're all feeling the after effects of All For One being right there. And All For One is creepy as hell. I understand he can steal other people's powers, but the way he's got to do it, mad creepy. Also, is Genus dead? Is Genus dead? They show Genus in his badass form. He's, of course, everything with Kablooey as soon as All For One got into the picture. And poor Genus was like there, right there, as everything was trying to come to fruition. He's trying to help save, um one of the cats, and everything went kablooey, like I said. So poor Genus is, is beaten up, he's like wrecked. And he's just crumpled on the ground, and he sees All For One rising, 
and he gets this whole like internal dialogue going about how like he knows he can't do much this might be the end but he's got to do something because real heroes don't worry about that they do what has to get done and you see him trying to get his self well basically like find some energy to use his ability to do something against all for one and he tries and of course all for one crushes that attempt really easily stupid easily and like blows a hole in homeboy's body like in his stomach and we see his eyes go from having a really small pupil which usually means when they're like super focused or super bewildered to nothing and that could mean death that could mean he just passed out it could mean anything i hope he's not dead i wouldn't be surprised if he was dead though it was traumatic it was traumatic and then we get the kids so deku comes up with this plan to not use their powers to fight, but to use their powers to help get Bakugo out of there because he realizes All All Might can't do too much against All For One with Bakugo right there. So they're like, okay, we need to come up with something. We need to come up with a plan so that we can get him, not actually deal with these enemies one-on-one, but get everybody to safety. And like Deku just going through all of the scenarios and everything like you know all might can't do this because of this is happening and bakugo can do this because he has so many against himself it was brilliant and he comes up with this plan and the plan is epic so they go in and everybody's using their ability immediately so you've got uh todoroki he's like we need you to build us a ramp an ice ramp as high as you can make it so that we can get this get this air we need this altitude so we can jump over everybody and get to safety in one go let's go so they do that and they get their ramp going and then it's deku and it's ida on either side of kirishima and they use kirishima's hardening so he can bust through the wall they're hiding behind and they use the force between ida's rocket legs and deku's whatever but power that is we know it's all it's a one for all type of power but for some reason it allows him to like really get some air so they're using those in conjunction to get the the speed and the air they need to get over this ramp so they're doing that and then they make it they're flying into the air they look back at bakugo bakugo sees them of course he's like these idiots and i love that deku's like no one else can do this part except for Kirishima. He's not going to listen to anybody but Kirishima. This entire time, him and Kirishima have been building a rapport between each other as equals, as friends. So he has to be the one to reach out for Bakugo. And that's what he does. You hear him shout out, come on. And he reaches out his hand and Bakugo immediately gets into action. He gets out of the way of these villains, manages to grab Kirishima's hand, cursing them the entire way because he's Bakugo. But they make it to safety. And you see All Might just be like, these kids, but also like, oh, thank God. So it, this plan this plan worked. This plan worked to get Bakugo to safety before he could be grabbed by All For One, I believe. Yes. At least we think it's working because now other stuff happens. It gets messy again. But anyway, up until that point, this plan was fantastic. And of course, we end it before we can really see a resolution for anything. Like I said, it gets messy towards the end. And then we're like, did Bakugo get taken? What's happening? So, more mess, more madness is happening. No booze are about to pop out of the place. So, and the pro, the, the pro heroes are still wrecked from all of the kalabooey from before. So, we kind of got Bakugo to safety, but not exactly. But All Might now definitely has the entire 
the entire area to try and take out all for one. And that's where we're going into the next episode. So it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what, well, we know what's going to happen next. If you read the manga, we know what's happening next. But I'm, I'm interested to see how they're going to dive in to this because the animated series, yeah, the anime series is slightly different and we get a little more information on some people sometimes. Like Genus, that whole section with Genus was not in the manga. So here's hoping. Here's hoping we get more cool, cool stuff. And then I'm going to transition into Sense8 because I'm like, okay. Okay, so first season of Sense8, I loved. I loved this idea of this framework that you could be connected to seven other people for its entirety of eight, the Sense8. Uh, and just be able to like talk to them and really connect to them on more than just like a friendshipy type of level. These people know you inside and out because they're also you, but they're also not you. Like it's a whole thing and they can just visit each other whenever they want and they'll just pop up. They can literally be in more than one place at any given time and they're able to keep track of everything and be in touch with everyone. So we get to see all of that and we got to see these relationships build, their outside relationships build. And also the dangers of being this, because of course, these are from the same people who created the Matrix, so it's not gonna be an easy go. There's also an evil corporation type entity that's coming after them, yada, yada, yada. First two seasons, first season was really good. Second season eh, was a little bit of a mess, and I could see why Netflix was like, "Mm, okay, all right. So uh, it was made by the Wachowski sisters, and there is a character in this called Nomi who who gets a lot of time, especially in the first season. I would even argue into the second season. She gets a lot, a lot of time. She's a transgender character and they really go into her backstory of the difficulties she had with her family in coming out of trans. And even more so after she went through the uh, medical procedures to fully become herself. So... It spent a lot of time on Nomi. And on the on one hand, it was completely understandable. At the time, um, um, was it both Wachowski sisters at that point? Maybe it was just one. I think the first one was basically had framed this story uh, based on some of her experiences of coming out as trans. And then I wanna say either by the end of the first season or into the second season, we found out that another Wachowski sister was coming out to everybody. So. I understood why they would be would they why they would favor Nomi above the other characters, but at the same time, I was just like, really, we really we have all these other characters. Okay, alrighty. Now, I mean, it's not to say they didn't do a, a te- they did a terrible job developing the other characters, but we definitely got a super developed Nomi. I'll just say that. But I still love the premise of everything until things started to spiral. So. The first season, we all got the shock value with the sex scene. So they had this major orgy-esque sex scene and that's how sensates apparently deal with sex. It was a lot. It was a lot to to deal with. But it did tap into the same overall narrative that they feel each other at all times. Um, But it became a a thing that happened every season. Like every season we got this huge type of orgy-esque episode for some reason and it was just like all right cool okay so after the end of season two netflix decided to cancel the rest of the series uh, probably because cost because they were traveling all over the world to get this done um maybe in name as well because the wakowskis are really well known 
or maybe because they're like, I don't, not a lot of people are tuning in. So maybe all of the above, who knows? They decided to cancel it. But there was a lot of people who were like, no, don't cancel it. Don't cancel it. And I was a part of that because they ended it on a cliffhanger. Like after everything that had gone down, we got to like the, the finally the meat of the show, which was the Sense8 cluster versus this corporation that was trying to destroy them. And we got on the precipice of discovering exactly what this corporation wanted. And then they were like, oh, cancel. So we got our two hour finale, which is supposed to close everything up. It did and it didn't. But I under, again, I understand they had a limited time to sew up all of these loose ends that they had put out from the two seasons prior. But on the other hand, they had quite a bit of time to get all this done. I don't, uh, to be fair, I don't know how fast it is to write a script. I don't know how quickly it is to put all of these ideas into one thing to, to shorten things and just close it on up. Probably took a while. Maybe they had a bunch of other things they wanted to do with the show and now they had to com- you know, compress it into this little thing. But either way, this finale, although I'm glad we got it, it just left me with a lot of what's happening kind of feelings. So in the finale, we get the culmination of them facing the corporation. We find out who the corporation is. We find out why they're doing the stuff they're doing. And then we also get these little personal relationships in between with the rest of the Sensei cluster. For whatever reason, we have now paired off everybody. Everybody has a love interest. Some have more than one. Some have more than one. Which had already been established in some of the show, like Luis and his boyfriend. And then they have a best friend slash girlfriend also that threesome was really confusing because a i mean in this the season when they introduced that as them being a throuple it was it was very much like a v so and 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 not even like a no not even a v i could i lie because you had lewis and his boyfriend and they were in love with each other and they had sex with each other and then they had the girl who was the best friend who liked to watch them but was never a part of it because they're both gay men so but in the finale it was just like whatever everybody gets everybody but we already knew that they were like a, a thing together so those three were together and then for whatever reason uh they decided to make a new throuple which i will get into in a few minutes but they also just coupled everybody else off so everybody got with somebody because reasons and why not son decided to get with the inspector that had been after her for a little bit but he was actually a really good guy he was just trying to find the truth out for things um and of course everybody else had already had existing pairs so there was that but this throuple okay i might as well just get into it this new throuple that they introduced so we had Oh, I'm trying to find their names and I am mad lost, guys. There we go. Kala. So we had Kala and her husband. Um, and then we also had, oh, why isn't his picture here? They got everybody else in this thing that I'm looking up. Oh, there it is, Wolfgang. But not that guy. So we had Kala and her husband and then Wolfgang. So Kala and Wolfgang, uh, when they were first finding out that they were sensates, they were the two that kept connecting with each other for some reason. And that connection turned into kind of like flirtiness so they were like flirty here attracted but flirty and then it became a little bit more than that they started kissing and there was a romance and like a bunch of stuff and they kind of set it up like she was torn well that she was torn between two people so she was uh in a committed relationship with somebody who basically was assigned to her she basically had an arranged marriage with a guy uh who for whatever reason said he was immediately in love with her there's that 
And then, of course, she was starting to fall for Wolfgang. And they really kind of paired it up like her having to deal with her family's expectations versus her own. But then she married the guy that she was in that arrangement with. She ended up marrying him. But she was still messing with Wolfgang on the side because they had that whole sensei thing that was still going. So when we get to our finale and everybody's finally on the same page about what's going on, instead of doing, I guess instead of doing the predictable thing where she has to make a choice between the two, they changed it. So now everybody's just cool with being a thruple. So this this guy, this entire her husband, this entire time had been very conservative in what he expected and what he thought they should or should not be doing as a couple, which wasn't out of context for him. Uh, Indian culture is pretty patriarchal, so they have expectations on things and whatever and whatnot. It wasn't out of character, but for him to go from that to being like, well, sure, yeah, I will share my my wife with this guy. Why not? Not only will I share my wife with this guy, I too will start to make out and do things with this guy because, yeah, I understand. They're trying to show the fluidity uh, between sexuality and gender and any kind of identity you want to place on that thing. Cool. But it, for me, it was just out of left field. I was like, okay. But again, they just had to close it up. They just had two hours to close everything up. So why not do whatever the hell we want to do? So <laughs> sensate. So we got our finale. We got an ending. It very much was a tidy and now everybody's in love type of ending. I like those endings. Those are my favorite. And we got cute little montages of them behind the scenes with the cast and the crew and everybody filming and for some reason having a dance off. It was cute. It was cute. But overall, Sense8, the story, a mess, a mess. But unfortunately, that's not unusual when it comes to Wachowskis. They are, in a, they are crazy imaginative. I love The Matrix. I have not seen that other science one they did where like Channing Tatum played a dog man. Some other Jupiter Descending, I think it was Jupiter Ascending. I have not watched it, but I know a lot of people who, who liked this idea, who liked this kind of gritty, super reality that they created. They're really good at that. They are really good at what they do, but they're also not really great at the extensions of this. Like initial story, fantastic. After that, what's happening? Where are we going with this? It gets mad confusing, super fast. Whatever. I mean, I'm happy we got the closer we got, but I definitely was left with like, what the happened? What the hell? What happened? What is going on? Even the way they finally got rid of the villain really wasn't super satisfying for me. It felt like they kept building it up to take it away, to build it up, to take it away, to build it up, to close it. Which I guess is supposed to happen, but it felt like it took way too long to get to where it did. And then once it happened, it wasn't fulfilling. It was just like, oh, all right, well, moving on to the next thing, I guess. Blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that's it. So that's my thoughts on Sense8. And yeah, that's it. That's it. So next week I will be uh, looking into the same stuff I've been looking into. Into the Badlands, Supergirl's finale, unfortunately. I know. I know. Can you complain about it and still watch it? Yeah. I'm going to do that. So that's going to be me. I'm going to be that person. Uh, I'm going to continue watching The Expanse, Humans. I'm going to check out Cloak and Dagger. Uh, follow up with My Hero Academia. And probably another show. So Incredibles is coming out in film. 
Well, of course in film, but in theaters next weekend. So I'm super excited to see that. I've waited a very long time for the sequel. I will be re-watching the first one, just so I'm all prepared for the sequel. And uh, I think that's really it. I don't think there's another film coming out or another TV show. Ooh, but Claws is coming out. So Claws is coming out tonight. Tonight's Sunday. So I'm going to check out that. Ooh. And Luke Cage is supposed to be coming out at some point. Let me check my handy dandy geek planner over here where I wrote a bunch of stuff down only to never see it again here we go oh Queer Eye 2 will also be coming out that Friday so I'm gonna check that out too Queer Eye is so cute I didn't think I was gonna like the revamp at all but it was so good it was so good it was so cute I got the feels I cheered up in some episodes it's adorable so their, se their sequel or their second season is gonna be dropping next Friday as well and then after that it's nothing until Luke Cage which comes out the Friday after that and then Preacher. I'm still on the fence about Preacher. I still don't know if I really want to watch it, watch it like that. Because I, I, the first season was okay. The second season, it took, it, I really struggled trying to finish it. And now we're into this third season. And I know the third season is its final season, but is it worth it for me to watch it? <laughs> I don't know. So we'll see. There's plenty of other shows I still haven't caught up on, like Legion. Everybody's like, Legion is great. Why aren't you watching it? And I'm like, I don't, what? Hmm? What? things and stuff so maybe i'll just watch legion instead and just recap it over the summer break instead who knows but we'll see so i will catch you guys later have a great week bye